Well, good morning, North Main Street Church of God and all the rest of you that have joined us here this morning. So glad that you're with us on Easter Sunday. Of course, I'd rather it be here, all of you, with me this Easter Sunday so we could be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ yet another year together. But due to the circumstances, you're there, I'm here, but at least we're together online. So I wanna welcome you into the presence of the church building, if you will, because you remember last week I said the church wasn't the building, but the people that inhabit the building. We showed you pictures of the sanctuary. It's empty, nobody else is here but me and uh, Craig Carnahan, who's helping to record the video for me uh, this morning. So I just wanted to welcome you again. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed our worship prior to this, uh, this message and that you, you joined in singing and praying, uh, getting ready for the scripture and the message today. Um, if you would, consider giving to North Main Street Church of God. If you're capable and able to do that, it does help us out tremendously, especially during a season like this. And I'm sure many of you are feeling the crunch as well. So please know our prayers are with you. But if you are able to give, uh, there are several ways you can give this morning to North Main Street Church of God and the ongoing ministries of North Main Street Church of God, uh, like this ministry of, of video casting. Um, and, and here are the ways you can do that. You can go to www.northmaincog.org and up on the right hand uh, top of the homepage is a button that says give. If you click on that button, you can give online today. Uh, you can text to give and at the bottom of your screen right now, you should see instructions on how to do text to give. And if you can't do either one of those, uh, we would encourage you to mail in your, your tithe check or your offerings uh, via the regular mail system at 1201 North Main Street Extension, and that's in Butler. Our zip code is 16001. And we do have people checking the mail daily uh, and uh, manning the phones daily, even in the midst of, of this lockdown period. Having gotten those nuts and bolts out of the way, you've joined me on Easter Sunday. And we typically and traditionally, most churches would be saying, He is risen, and then the congregation would say, He is risen indeed. So hopefully you just joined along with me there. He is risen, and we do believe that. He is risen indeed. Christ the Savior, who was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, lived a life that we should have lived, died a death that we should have died, and rose from the grave on the third day. The third day would have been the first day of the week. On Sunday, he rose from the grave, just after Passover. And here we come to Easter Sunday. We've been doing a series entitled, uh, For the Joy, taken from Hebrews chapter 12, which is our theme verse, Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3. And today we move on in the story of, of the crucifixion and the resurrection in John chapter 16. Now, I want you to understand 
that this passage is not the resurrection. And I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, I think it's important, though, that we go here today. And, and like I said, in just a few moments, I'll give you more details about that. Thinking about how to, uh, how to describe what's coming in the message and to give you a little bit of a base on, on where we're going this morning, uh, I came across an amazing illustration for our sermon titled The Joy of the Cross. And it's about the composer Ludwig von Beethoven. Uh, Beethoven uh, existed, lived uh, during the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, respectively. And he lived much of his life in fear of going deaf. As any great composer, uh, they would be in fear of going deaf because they wouldn't be able to hear the music. His concern was because he felt that his sense of hearing or that the sense of hearing was essential to creating music uh, of lasting value. When Beethoven actually discovered that he feared most, what he feared most was actually happening to him, he almost became frantic with anxiety, as most of us probably would have. It was going to ruin his livelihood. It was going to ruin his dreams as a composer. He, con he consulted doctors and tried everything possible that he could to remedy the loss of hearing. But the deafness increased until, at last, every single bit of his hearing was gone. Beethoven finally found the strength that he needed, however, to go on despite his hearing loss. To everyone's amazement, he wrote some of his greatest music after he became totally deaf. Did you know that? With all distractions shut out from the rest of the world, melodies flooded in on him, into his mind, as fast as he could write them down on paper. You see, his deafness became his greatest asset. The key point this morning is this. Sometimes losing is actually winning. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that all that ever happens to you is that you lose? Well, why would I play this or do that? Because I'm just going to lose anyway. Well, maybe it's important to think of the fact that maybe sometimes losing is actually winning. Today, Easter Sunday, we come to this passage in John chapter 16, not about the resurrection, but rather about the hope of the resurrection. With a look at Jesus' final moments with his disciples around the table at the Last Supper. If you remember last week, we talked on Palm Sunday about John chapter 12 and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And now he has procured this place in Jerusalem, this upper room. And in the upper room, he washes the disciples' feet. They celebrate the Passover meal. And Jesus then starts to talk to them about some very final but very important things. Jesus knows his time has come. But the disciples, they're still oblivious to the fact that Jesus, in just a few hours, will be arrested by the temple guards in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will ultimately lead his disciples to go and pray with him. 
So in our passage from John chapter 16, and I'll have you go ahead and turn there now, we'll read the words of Jesus' encouragement to the disciples, his closest friends. In the midst of what is about to happen to Jesus, the tragedy of death and sorrow and grief, the disciples will see Jesus come into his full glory as he fulfills the Father's purpose for his life. Some 33 years of his life have come and gone, and it's led up to this point. And he's given them final instructions and encouragement. Jesus even tells them the devastating truth of their coming betrayal of him in the midst of his darkest hour and need. But he wants them to understand that these words aren't meant to discourage them, but rather to give them peace in the coming days, knowing that this is not the end. Their betrayal also is not the end. So let's take a closer look at John chapter 16 this morning, starting with verse 16. And I'm reading from the New Living Testament. In a little while, Jesus says, you won't see me anymore. But in a little while after that, you'll see me again. Some of the disciples asked each other, hey, what does he mean when he says in a little while you won't see me? But then you will see me. I'm going to the Father. What's that mean? And and what does he mean by a little while? We, We don't even understand this. In verse 19, he goes on to say, Jesus realized that they wanted to ask him about it, so he said, are you asking yourselves what I meant? I said in a little while you won't see me, but in a little while after that you will see me again. I tell you the truth, you will keep, you, excuse me, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me. But the world, it will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly be turned to wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering in in labor pains. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. So you have sorrow for now, but I will see you again, and then you will rejoice. And no one can rob you of that joy. At that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth, you will ask the Father directly, and he will grant your request because you use my name, he says. You haven't done this before. Ask using my name, and you will receive, and you will have abundant joy. I have spoken these things uh, in matters, uh, in figures of speech, but soon I will stop speaking figuratively. And I will tell you plainly all about the Father. And then you will ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself, he, he, himself, he loves you dearly because you love me and, and believe that I came from God. Yes, I came from the Lord into the world. And now I will leave the world and return to the Father. Then his disciples said, At last, you're speaking plainly and not figuratively. Now we understand that you know everything and there's no need to question you. From this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus, I'm sure, chuckling a little bit to himself or maybe a little indignant, says, do you finally believe? But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when you will be scattered, each one of you going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, 
but take heart. I've overcome the world. You see, from this passage of Scripture this morning, this Easter morning, how can we deduce that Jesus is losing his life is actually a winning prospect? How is Jesus losing his life a winning prospect, not only for the 12 disciples, but for the rest of the world? Well, the first thing this morning is this. Jesus tells them that in a little while they won't see him anymore, but then in a little while after that, they will see him again. You see, Jesus is referring to his coming death and resurrection. Literally within just a few hours of him telling them this, Jesus would be arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, and ultimately laid in a borrowed tomb that wasn't even his own, not even a part of his family. The disciples would not see him anymore the way they were currently seeing him. But he says, in just a little while longer, you will see me again. See, Jesus had alluded to his death many times before this. Actually, a handful of times before this. He had been telling them, as they sat around the table, I'm going to be taken away from you. I'm going to go away from this place. I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going to be handed over and crucified. But he tells them in each instance, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And I know that you guys will be okay because I trust you. He's telling them this so that they won't lose heart. So that when that time comes, even though they may be scattered, they'll remember his words. Jesus had alluded to his death so many times before, but they didn't understand what he meant. And now he's telling them this one final time, sitting around the Passover table that night, that he's going to be leaving them again soon. See, these words from Jesus sound so defeating at first. I mean, think about somebody you love so much telling you, I'm not going to be here much longer. And it's not that they're leaving to go to a different town or that they're leaving to go uh, to, to some other place on the globe, but that they're literally leaving this earth. What does he mean that they will not see him anymore? What, what, they still can't wrap their heads around that. Where's he going? What are they going to do without him? Just that evening, he'd already mentioned that he was going to be going. And recall his words in John chapter 14. One of my, one of my other favorite uh, chapters in the whole uh, of Scripture is John chapter 14. Uh, listen to Jesus uh, around the table uh, that evening with them. Don't let your hearts be troubled, he tells them. Trust in God, but trust also in me. There was more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you that I, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. You see, he's telling them, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And eventually I'll return. Now, there are two, two aspects of that. He is going to return after three days in a new resurrected body, the resurrected Lord. But even after that, he's going to eventually ascend to heaven, prepare a place for us. And then sometime in the future, which hasn't happened yet, he will come again to receive his own unto himself. 
When everything is ready, he says in verse 3 of chapter 14, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you will know the way, and you know the way to where I'm going. See, he's been talking about this. The kingdom of God has been the main theme of the gospel messages with Jesus. He's been telling them what God's kingdom is like. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now John, he's told them what God's kingdom is like. What heaven, this place where God exists, is like. And he says, you know where I'm going. I've been talking to you about it for three years. But then in verse 5, no, we don't know, Lord, Thomas says. We have no idea where you're going, so how can, how can we know the way? And Jesus told him these very simple but profound words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, Thomas. If you really know me, you would know the Father. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. <clears throat> but Philip says, one of the other twelve, Lord, show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus replies with these words, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and still you don't know who I am? What is he saying? He's telling them, I'm going to go go prepare a place for you. Where is that place? He's been telling them about the kingdom of God for three years. But he says, I'm going to come back and I'll get you and you can be with me always after I return. Well, just show us the Father. If you are the way, the truth, and the life, then just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied, Philip says. And Jesus says, It's me. Philip, have I not been with you this long and you still don't know me? Anyone who has seen me, he's seen my father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I speak are not my own, but my father who lives in me and does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or, or at least, he says, believe because of the work you've seen me do. You see, Jesus' statements about himself bear the clear markings of his divine nature in the fact that in order for his purposes to be fulfilled and thus to bring the world the greatest hope of all, he must first leave them for a while in order that he can come back again, resurrected and renewed. See, this is the hope he's trying to give them in the resurrection. Sometimes losing what we love the most is a way of refocusing, it has a way of refocusing our attention on what's most important. Let me, let me say that one more time. Sometimes losing what we love the most has a way of refocusing our attention on what is most important. For Jesus, that means death on the cross. For without his death, there could be no resurrection. What's the next thing? How how do we know that losing is actually a winning prospect in regard to Jesus' death? Well, let's look. He says, you will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. He says that in verse 20. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly be turned to wonderful joy. Why will they grieve? 
And why will their grief suddenly be turned to joy? Well, we know he's been telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to go away from here. They still don't understand it. They don't understand the words that are coming out of his mouth. Well, they will grieve at the loss of their master, their teacher, their Lord. But at the resurrection, their grief will suddenly be turned to joy as they realize not only what they've lost has come back to them, but that they now have more than they could have ever imagined. Because Jesus' resurrection tells them something even more significant than anything they've learned from Jesus right now. That in Jesus, not only can we be forgiven of our sins, but in Jesus' resurrection, we don't have to be bound to death. You see, one of the things that was set into motion through the fall in Genesis chapter 3 was sin and death. And it is ruled over this world in such a way as to wreak havoc on you, on me, and every generation prior to us. But Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. You see, the thief has had his time, John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief have had his, has had his time to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus reminds us that he came to bring us life abundantly. And that life starts in the here and now, not in the there and then. Sometimes losing, though, losing what we love the most has a way of refocusing our attention on what is most important. For Jesus, this means his death is required in order for his resurrection to be a reality. But it also means that our grief will be turned to joy. Many of us right now grieve at the loss of loved ones. We grieve at the tragedy in life. Many of you are probably grieving at home right now in the wake of this pandemic. Just worried sick with anxiety. Why do you worry about tomorrow? For tomorrow has enough worries of its own, Jesus says. Can you add a day to your life by worrying? You see, God takes care of the sparrows by feeding them. He takes care of the lilies of the field that bloom today and are gone tomorrow. He clothes them in radiance and beauty. Because of the disciples' love and faith and belief in Jesus, even though they will falter, God's love will not diminish for them. Isn't that an amazing promise? No matter what you do, God still loves you. Even though Jesus must die, his return from the grave will bring forth an awakening of the soul that the disciples' ancestors could have only dreamed of. The disciples, the twelve, are experiencing what their ancestors had long awaited, the Messiah to come, and that for him to truly reign in might and majesty and power, not the way they had anticipated, but rather in a way that was eternal. Though all seemed lost at first for the disciples, for those three days that Jesus was in the tomb, at the resurrection of Christ, a path to the throne room of grace was paved through the blood of Christ and his ultimate sacrifice. You see, what Jesus is doing here is elevating this image of God 
by explaining clearly God's love for them because of their belief in Jesus. See, you're going to grieve for me for a while, but then all of a sudden, your grief is going to be turned into wonderful joy. Why? Because of the realization of who Jesus truly is at his resurrection. And at that moment, we will have, they will have the opportunity to approach the throne room of grace. Why? Not because God needed to just be appeased through a sacrifice, but because God loves us. I love what the theologian and biblical scholar William Barclay writes. Listen to what he says. He describes this whole scene very well in his commentary on the Gospel of John. Often we tend to think in terms of an angry God and a gentle Jesus. What Jesus did is presented in a way which seems to mean that he changed the attitude of God to men and made him a God of love instead of a God of judgment. Do you see what he's saying? We get this idea that before Jesus, God was just really angry, stomping around up there, seeking whom he may destroy, like we would say the enemy does. We see the God of the Old Testament as a God of judgment and wrath, but it's because we don't read the God of the Old Testament with the lens of love, because the God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and Jesus showed us a glimpse into the very heart of God. It's the gospel writer John who writes the gospel of John, who writes also the three letters of John later on in the New Testament that says God is love. And it took the disciples being with Jesus for three years to see him crucified and resurrected to realize that God is a God of love. But here... We see, Barclay goes on to say, but here Jesus is saying, you can go to God because God loves you. And he is saying that before the cross. He says that before the cross. He says that around the table at the Passover meal, the Last Supper, with the disciples. He's telling them God loves you before he goes to the cross. He did not die to change God into into a God of love. He died to tell us that God is love. That God's love knows no bounds, it knows no limits. And that because of God's relentless love for you and me, he's willing to sacrifice himself. He came not because God so hated the world, but because he so loved the world, Jesus brought to men and women the very love of God to show us who God truly is. And this is a paradoxical, countercultural way of thinking, but it's exactly the point. The world is corrupted by sin and death, and the only way to overcome sin and death is by Jesus, the one who knew no sin taking all that sin and all that corruption upon himself and dying on the cross in order to resolve the problem of sin. That's what Jesus did. Jesus' death breaks down the barriers that have separated us from God since the beginning of time at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And what of his resurrection? Well, Jesus' resurrection from the grave resolves the issue of death once and for all for those who follow in his footsteps by believing in Jesus. So that death no longer has a hold on you. The third and final thing this morning is this. Here on earth, Jesus says, you will have trials and sorrows of many kinds. 
That sounds depressing, doesn't it? Sounds like losing. And if he'd left it there, that would be a sad, sad thing. But he doesn't. He says, take heart. I've overcome the world. The disciples were about to undergo the most difficult test of their lives as Jesus followers. Their courage and boldness would be pressed to the breaking point. Would they stand with Jesus in his hour of greatest need or would they abandon him to utter shame and defeat? Jesus answers the question before it's even asked. They would scatter like sheep going their own way. They would leave him completely alone. However, he tells them not to be discouraged. Why does he tell them not to be discouraged? He tells them not to be discouraged, but to relay to them that he understands what's about to happen. He wants to, he wants to remind them, listen, you're going to do this. You're going to fail me miserably. But that's okay. I just want you to know that's going to happen so that when it happens, you won't become overly discouraged to the point of desperation and doing something stupid. He doesn't want them to lose heart. Do you catch what he's saying here? Rather, he wants them to remember this time so that they can have peace in what he's saying to them. He's also letting them know that even when they leave him, he is not alone because the Father's with them. He says, even though you're going to leave me, I'm still not going to be completely alone because I know the Father's with me. And as, as they will ultimately come back to Jesus, the Father will be with them as he was with Jesus in his greatest time of need. He wants to remind them, you're going to eventually come back. You're going to be scattered for a while, but don't lose heart. It's going to be okay. I'm going to ultimately be okay. This is what Jesus means when he tells them that in this world they will have trials and sorrows of many kinds. And why he continues that statement with the words, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Truly there is peace and rest and true comfort in this fact. Not just for the 12 disciples, but for you and I. When you feel you're most discouraged, you're most frustrated, when you feel you're most trapped or most alone, we can take these words to the bank to remember that in our trials and in our sorrows and in our desperation, when the world seems to close in around us, that we as believers in Christ can take heart for Jesus has overcome the world. How did he do that? By dying for the sins of the world, but more importantly, by raising to new life through the resurrection on the third day. Barclay closes out this section in his commentary with these words, proclaiming that Jesus, that, that Jesus says, the, the victory which I win can be your victory too. The world did its worst to me. I emerged victorious. Life can do its worst to you, and you too can emerge victorious. You too can possess the courage and the conquest of the cross. But in order to do this, you must first take up your cross and follow him. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If any of you wants to be my follower, Jesus says, you must first take up your, you must deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me. The only way to the resurrected life is through the cross of Christ. Sometimes 
losing is really winning. So I close today with a story quoted by Warren Wiersbe in one of his writings about the famed 19th century evangelist and author F.B. Meyer. Listen to what he writes. A miserable-looking woman recognized F.B. Meyer on a train she was on and ventured to share her burden with him. For years, she had cared for her handicapped daughter who had brought her great joy throughout the time they were together. She made her tea each morning, then left for work, knowing that in the evening the daughter would be there when she arrived home. But sadly, her daughter grew ill and died, and the grieving mother was all alone and miserable from that point forward. Home was not home anymore for her. Meyer gave her wise counsel. He said, when you get home today, put the key into the door and say out loud, Jesus, I know you're here. And be ready to greet him directly when you open the door. And as you light the fire, tell him what has happened during the day. If anybody has been kind, tell him about it. If anybody's been unkind, tell him about that. Just as you would have told your daughter. At night, stretch out your hand in the darkness and say, Jesus, I know you're here. Some months later, Meyer was back in that same neighborhood and he met that woman again, but he didn't recognize her this time. Her face radiated joy instead of announcing misery. And with joy, she explained this to Meyer. I did as you told me, and it's made all the difference in my life. And now I feel like I do know him. And he will never go away from me. Do you feel like you know him this morning? Truly, truly, do you feel like you know him? Are you bumbling through life with sorrow and doubt, merely struggling to find your way through each day, week, or month, maybe even year at this point? Has fear and discouragement gotten you so off track that you don't know your way back to joy and peace? You see, sometimes the only way to victory is through the battle. You don't become a deserter and win a battle. You stay in the fight. You fight the good fight. And you come out on the other side. And how do I know that you can win the battle? Because Jesus already won the victory on the cross and the empty tomb. And in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Are you afraid of the unknown beyond the struggles that you currently face? Maybe it's time to step out in faith and forge through those difficult times and circumstances instead of giving up the fight. If God's kingdom isn't of this world, doesn't it stand to reason that what looks like losing to the world is actually winning in God's kingdom? Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verses 24 through 25. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. 
And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? Good question. Sometimes losing is winning. Let me ask you this morning before I close. If you're listening to this broadcast and and you've just happened upon us through the airwaves, do you know Christ as Lord and Savior of your life? Have you surrendered your life to him completely? Not just partially, because he wants all of you, not just some of you. He wants every bit of you, heart, soul, mind, body. So what I want to ask you to do this morning, if you need to recommit your life to Christ this morning because you've been barely getting by, struggling, not just financially, but I mean, I'm talking about spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Have the worries of this world, have the struggles of this life, have the trials of this life gotten you so off track that you're stuck in the mud? Or do you remember the promise of Jesus who says, Take heart, I've overcome the world. And in essence, he's saying, because I've overcome the world, you can overcome the world through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I want to lead you in a prayer this morning. And I'm going to close with that. But the prayer I'm going to lead you in is a prayer of salvation. It's not that the prayer saves you, but it's that the heart praying the prayer in true faith is what saves a person. Do you believe in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? Are you willing to confess him with your mouth? Then you can be saved. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer of salvation this morning. And if you're there in your homes or wherever you're watching this this morning, and you are ready I'm going to ask you to repeat after me this prayer. Heavenly Father, I give you my life right now. I'm a sinner, and I repent of my sins this morning. I ask you to forgive me of those sins. I ask you to come into my life through the power of your Holy Spirit, And give me new life and make me into a new creation this morning. I ask you to give me hope for a future. I ask you to remind me that when temptation comes, there's a way out. Thank you, Father, for saving my soul. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you, Father, for loving me relentlessly. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you truly meant that and you prayed that this morning, you are a child of God. Not even the enemy can strip you out of the Father's hands. Nothing can separate you from God now. I ask that you testify to that fact tell somebody go online and say i just got saved this morning jesus has made me a new creation tell your family tell your friends 
Don't keep it a secret. And join a Bible-believing church, whether that's North Main Street Church of God or somewhere else. Join a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church where you can learn along with other believers in Christ to be challenged as iron sharpens iron to grow in your faith and knowledge and understanding of this Jesus you have now made Lord of your life. God willing, we'll see you back here next week. Until then, God bless. I love you guys. I'm praying for you. Stay strong. Keep the faith. And we'll see you next week.